Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and this is the Theater of Public Policy podcast. The show we have for you today is an education reporter special. We had on Ali Matos of the Star Tribune, Christopher Megan of the Pioneer Press, and Beth Hawkins of Education Post. When we set out to do this show, we thought we would have a roundtable discussion featuring uh, several of the bigger reporters who are covering education for a major media source. And what we encountered was a lot of controversy in the run-up to the show. We've been doing the theater of public policy for about four years now, and we found that the issues that seem to generate the most controversy on our end are education-related issues. That's the shows that we've had protesters at, and in particular, in the run-up to this show, we started receiving a lot of phone calls, and people started contacting the Bryant Lake Bowl and our funders and Finnegan's, and people started uh, kind of reacting very, very harshly that we didn't have uh, the right people on the show or we weren't doing it correctly or the people that we had were in the pockets of billionaires and they were just getting the neoliberal agenda. One woman even uh, called us on the phone and said that public schools would end in a few years, so it didn't matter what happened. And we're kind of flummoxed by this. Um, just in the reaction, we generally think of ourselves as uh, very approachable and comedic people that are agreeable to all sorts of different viewpoints. Um, and we didn't want this show to turn into a debate. We don't like to think of it uh, as necessarily we have to present two sides of the issue, or every issue even has two sides. We wanted this to be more a discussion about what's going on, not an ideological confrontation. Um, and so I think we managed to do that rather well. Uh, but please enjoy the show and tell me what you think. Thank Thanks. You so much. This is exciting. Look at how many people we have on stage. This is like more than we usually have in the audience. This is exciting. Um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is our season finale, and we wanted to end the season on something, you know, very not controversial that everyone is excited about, which is <laughs> education policy. I, actually, in all seriousness, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of individual issues that I want to talk about, but I am I, I keep coming back to this question. Uh, it's I, I'm very curious about why education becomes the issue that is so sensitive and the thing that people get so riled up about. Because we do shows about a lot of different things. Uh, we've literally done shows this season about Black Lives Matter, and we've done shows this year about pro-choice, pro-life issues. And this is the one where like, people want to call me at home uh, and be upset. And I get that there's a, I guess I get that there's a lot of angst and anger, but from some folks who cover it all the time, where, why do you see a lot of this? I think it's, I mean, simply, it's, two things are at the heart of it. I think one, I mean, it's our kids. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's our, our children, uh, you know, people's children are at the center of public education and policy. It affects them. So I think that that really riles people up. Um, if you make decisions that have an impact directly on their children and they come home and talk about it, um, you know, if they don't like those decisions, I think they're going to let you know about it. Um, the other piece of it is, is that it's a huge pocketbook issue. So I think it, you know, financially, this is something that everybody, you know, has an opinion on because public schools either have nowhere near the money they need or they have way too much money or everything's fine. So, I mean, I think those are those the Those are the three options. Those are the yeah. three options. You either have way too much, way too little, or it's the everything's close. Of public right. policy. It, 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 uh, typically, yeah. yeah. I think that's – I think I just boiled it down there. I think. Yeah, the, thank you. That was easy. That was a good show, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, I, I don't know. Any uh, – Yeah, and I think um, everyone's been in school, and so they have an idea of what worked for them. And, you know, and we've all been through that. And so we think, oh, well, I remember my teachers did this, this, and that, and my principals did this and that, and I turned out okay, so why doesn't everybody else do that? Um, so yeah, everyone has an opinion about how it should be done. 
and yeah, it's it's kids' lives. So yeah. it, you know, they're you, the future. You, yeah, you can't I mess keep that hearing up. that. <laughs> I miss being the future. Um, uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, so uh, let, let's talk about a couple uh, uh, really big picture things, and then we'll kind of uh, focus down onto some of the more local things. So. Uh, Minnesota, my parents were from Minnesota originally, and then I grew up in Florida. And uh, growing up, you know, my parents always talked about Minnesota as being the best place mm -hmm. in the country for education for a lot of things. And then I come here and everybody talks about, oh, no, we have this, we have the worst achievement gap in the country. And so I guess, uh, did something change over that time? Or is it the way that we measured it changed? Uh, or is it some third option that I haven't thought of because I went to public school in Florida? Well, we, <laughs> we started measuring it, for starters. We started measuring it about 12 years ago. We got, um, for the first time, information broken down by demographic group, by socioeconomic <laughs> level, and by disability status. So we were able to actually look at it and measure it and name it. Yeah. Uh, and so can we, uh, you were, sorry. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that I think the other thing that happened in that time since we started measuring the achievement gap is that Minnesota uh, has become a lot more diverse than it was even a decade ago. So um, you're seeing a lot uh, of, of kind of change in who the students are and who we're educating. I mean, there's a lot more immigrants that are coming to the state. Um, you know, we've seen just a lot, uh, the state's a lot more racially diverse in general. And then we've also seen since, you know, during the recession, there's been a lot more kids that are living in poverty. So I think that really exacerbates the gap. So <clears throat> I think part of the reason uh, folks of my parents' generation think about this is because there was a time, at least they would point to it, maybe in that overly nostalgic way people have that, uh, education for a time was this thing in Minnesota. It was like, no, we're going to have like the best schools or we're going to invest a lot. Has it gotten to be more of a, a partisan issue or a, a more of a divisive issue? Or is it still sort of held up as that special thing for Minnesota that we're going to have the best schools? So, or you is know, that a false narrative to be our, our the Nadir, if that's how you pronounce it, is that how you pronounce it? The, the, our highest moment was when Wendell Anderson was on the cover of Time magazine. And the thing that landed him there was the Minnesota Miracle, which was a funding equalization maneuver. Um, basically, the, co the co courts told the state to try to eliminate the gaps between the poor districts and the wealthy ones. And so tax revenue was redistributed. And um, our politicians have tinkered with that over the last couple, three decades. To greater and lesser extent, Tim Pawlenty um, and Jesse Ventura did away with it. Governor Dayton reintroduced the architecture that would allow for the turning back on of the taps. And we do still actually have some of the most egalitarian school funding in the country. We're in, in the top handful of states in terms of what we do to make sure that poor kids have um, an equitable funding system. Yeah. And I don't think that the issue necessarily is divisive. I think the goal is the same, no matter, for most people, but I think how you get there is what's divisive. I think a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts about what they need to do and what, where money needs to go, where resources need to be spent in order to achieve that end goal of being, you know, one of the best educated states in the country. So let's talk about something that's not divisive at all. There's a segregation lawsuit um, uh, going on right now. Uh, and can you just give us sort of the, the boilerplate background on where we are or where that came from and where we are with it? Right. So um, for since the 80s, 70s, 60s, we've been talking about segregation. And there was a lawsuit back in 2001 against Minneapolis that basically said, you kids of color are not being educated. And it's because of segregation and do something to fix it. So that's where we got Choices Yours, where 
um, low-income students could choose to go to a suburban district um, from, from Minneapolis. So we're sort of back at that. They, you know, looking at the data, we're, we're back at schools that... Did things improve in those years? Like, did, did the things... No. It just... It was no. Yeah. I mean, that's the argument. That's the argument. That the things have not... That didn't fix anything. We're worse off than we've been ever in terms of segregation. Um, so this lawsuit focused very particularly on Minneapolis and St. Paul, although they're not named in the lawsuit, because the state's the only one that can actually do something about it, because they want metro-wide integration. So they're saying Minneapolis can't integrate by itself because all the white kids have left. Force them back somehow. So that's integrate. do they? I mean, do we know how? Do they specify how? As far as so they want to create, make the metro a pie and sort of split it up evenly. We would, they'd get rid of um, district boundaries as we know it. Minneapolis wouldn't look like it does. St. Paul wouldn't look like it does. Edina might not look the way it does now. So that's their goal. Is so that integration. They believe that the way we fix our achievement gaps is to give students of color the same opportunities that white kids have in terms of racial mix. I mean, I, I would, Beth, I'm just curious because uh, I know a lot of folks probably in our uh, South Minneapolis audience get most of their education news from This American Life. And uh, and there was a there was a very good This American Life, a two-parter. Uh, we, I cried my way around Lake Harriet twice to that one. Yeah, we were, I mean, we all had listening parties and, yep. you know, uh, I'm going to work on my Ira Glass talk right now. Uh, so... Uh, and so there was a lot of talk about uh, segregation in that as this thing, but they also pointed to that, you know, we tried a lot of desegregation things for a, a large part of the 70s and the 80s, and that there was a, there's been huge backlashes to that. And so I guess I'm asking a political question of, like, why do we think that this time will be different? Like, how do you actually make it work? Well, I personally don't think that it's going to work. Oh, good. Or that this it's going to be different. <laughs> I, th I think that, you know, there's a whole nother undercurrent to this, and there's a whole nother school of thought that says that there are some schools that are largely populated by one race or one ethnicity or one particular group that are doing really incredibly well. And it is true, I think, that integration is good for all kids. It's good for white kids. It's really good for white kids. It's excellent for white kids who want to go out and compete in today's economy and who want to have the kind of... Um, social fluidity that is required of them. Uh, it's good for kids of color. It's good for immigrant kids. But if it's not going to happen, I mean, good luck busing somebody from Maple Grove mm -hmm. to Richfield. It's, I just don't see it. And I think that we would be wise to concentrate on looking at what works, regardless of what type of school it's working in, and to try to ensure equity in other ways. So uh, I want to get to what works, but as long as we're on like a sadness train, uh, there's, uh, we, I imagine we'll get to talking more about charter schools. One of the things uh, people have talked about with charter schools for a long time is that this is where a lot of experimentation or whatnot should happen. Uh, for folks who do design thinking, a big part of, uh, um, a big part of that experimentation would be when something doesn't work then you ax it then you like end it and you try something else and I think that some of the complaints against charter schools have been you know we just kind of they keep going and going and we we want to see like okay these ones absolutely didn't work and so we want to shut them down or so there's a divide in the charter community over that there's one's camp if you will um that would like very much to close the lowest performing charters and there's another camp that lobbies every year against that 
And the camp that lobbies every year is against that outweighs greatly numerically the other camp. Would you? Well, I, I think so. I mean, Minnesota has made some pretty recent moves to try to strengthen oversight of charter schools. I mean, it used to be that um, the, the oversight groups that basically, you know, um, chartered these, basically authorized these schools were um, a lot, I guess it was a little bit loose, more loosey-goosey than it is now. So what they have now is there's a lot more um, uh, responsibility put on those authorizers to make sure the schools that, that they oversee are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we should explain just because uh, I'm sure everyone in the audience already knows <laughs> charter school authorization processes. Right, right, yeah. uh, but uh, th that there are there are organizations and who I mean these are sort of sort of I mean most of the time they're nonprofit or education groups. Uh, you know I think sometimes the colleges. Um, I think. Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, the, the union uh, is an authorizer. authorizer. Yeah. So and, but the number much, has been shrinking. It has been because authors. it's so much harder to become one now than it was maybe 10 years ago. And it comes with so many more obligations right. in terms of ensuring that your schools are delivering. So now if there's a complaint against a charter school, if someone says this school is doing this wrong, it's against the law, that goes to the authorizer first. They're supposed to take care of it. If they don't, then the state comes in and basically shuts off the authorizer, shuts, shuts them down. Oh, sad. Um, so, well, maybe not sad. Uh, it depends on who. I, I le okay, so let's. I have so many things to get through. I have so many cards here. So let's talk about. Um, uh, oh, St. Paul had a school board election. Yes. Uh, the the ponies <laughs> finally got across the river to let us know here in Minneapolis about that. Right. Um, but can you just give us sort of the rundown of what happened and why this was a significant news story? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I guess essentially. Um, you know, about a, a beginning of the year, I didn't think anyone thought there was going to be much of a race in St. Paul. Um, and but there's been sort of a little backlash on some of the district policies uh, that center around um, around discipline. I think is a big one. Um, and so uh, the uh, St. Paul Teachers Union decided to uh, back a slate of candidates, um, and they overwhelmingly were endorsed in the conventions um, earlier this year and then um, won the, you know, the election in November. So they will basically re remake the, the board. And, I mean, I think it's significant because they were um, supported uh, not just by, you know, the, the, the political groups, but I think there was a lot of kind of parent um, angst in the district about some of the problems that had, ha had been happening, um, you know, what are some – just get, I mean, give us the snapshot of some of these policies that were the touch points. Well, I think – so the big one I, I, th I guess we could probably focus on would, was this whole idea of um, kind of mainstreaming and putting back into regular school classrooms kids that had been in um, – I mean, special ed and, and other, you know, not, we're not in tr traditional classrooms day to day because of, a lot of times because of behavioral issues. Um, the, they want to decrease the disparity in discipline. So they don't want to have uh, African-American students being disciplined at a rate that's three or four times that of white students. Um, so what they're... Six. Yeah, is it that, yeah. that, it's that much? Uh, so what they're really trying to do is, is to try to create some balance there. But it's been pretty criticized, you know, and then every time there's an incident, I think people look at that, you know, that decision and, and kind of cast it as the reason why they're maybe are having a gun found at school or, you know, fights where teachers were knocked down or there was injuries and stuff like that. So um, I think that's probably the big one. Yeah. Uh, the district also faced kind of stagnant test scores, by and large, or even declining in some cases. Uh, enrollment's been on the decline, um, and I think that has also led to uh, some kind of criticism of the recent administration. So, 
I think that there's been yeah. sort of, uh, I don't know if you call it a groundswell, but I think there's been some coordination to, to you know, make some change there. I don't know. We'll see what it'll look like. Uh, what do you think, Beth? <laughs> For the audio <laughs> audience, there's just a shrug uh, from I do. Th I do think that a kid coming home and talking about a day where they were bullied or their learning was disrupted all day long is really, really hard. And that's the kind of thing that can really wear on a teacher, and it can wreck the dinner table. And it can turn people out. I mean, we're going back to the very beginning of the conversation, right? right? When you're talking about why is this so red hot? You know, on the one hand, you do have that six to one disparity. On the other hand, it can bring the entire class to a halt for the whole day. So how do you resolve that? That's a real tough issue. So, uh, Ali, I wanted to ask you, Minneapolis just uh, last week, uh, last Monday, had, I don't know, like a pageant of new school, uh, <laughs> school superintendent uh, candidates. And so... I don't, how was the talent portion? I, um, I, can you just talk? What it, I, I, in all seriousness, I'm, asked, I'm curious. What uh, the tell us just the three candidates, and then what is the board said that they're looking for? How are they evaluating this? So there's three. There's the interim superintendent Michael Gore, who has the product of Minneapolis and uh, has worked in Minneapolis, in Memphis, and in Boston, and he's right now uh, interim after Bernadia Johnson resigned um, last year. Then there's Charles Faust, who is an administrator in Houston. He oversees some middle middle school principals. Um, I read like a I read like a, a legend about Faust. I think in middle school. Oh. Um, I guess uh, I should read up on that. Picture. Yeah, no, as, uh, <laughs> he made some sort of deal, and I think it worked out. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then there's uh, Sergio Paez, who's the former superintendent of Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is the state's most underperforming district. Um, he was hired to turn it over. And then did he sell himself that way? Like we have the what? I have the most <laughs> underperforming district. Well, he does because he says he was there to turn it around, but then the state took over, and so he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. But in the time that he was there, he says they did great things. So. Um, um, the board is looking, um, I mean, it depends who you ask, right? We can ask her right there. She's sitting right there. We have, we have board members in the audience, yes. but let's just pretend. So, uh, like, uh, 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 it depends who you ask, but they're looking for longevity. They're looking for someone who can really engage the community, someone who's culturally competent, um, that can you know, boost achievement for students of color, um, new immigrants. Um, they're looking for someone who's had experience in urban school districts. So, um, I mean, you know, this is one of the, and this is sort of for everybody, but uh, we had a, a forum here actually a couple years ago now with the 2013 mayoral candidates here in Minneapolis. And during that campaign, you know, education in Minneapolis was the thing that kept getting brought up over and over and over. And I asked during that forum, I'm like, well, why don't you all run for school board then? Because the mayor of Minneapolis doesn't mm -hmm. actually necessarily have a whole lot of control over Minneapolis schools. And, you know, the, the response was, well, it's a matter of leadership and you want a whole, the whole city working together. That said, and without trying to be too cynical, like it doesn't seem like it's the political, like it's not something that we hear uh, the, the political, the council or the mayoral mm -hmm. office talking about as regularly. And so I'm curious about with the, the uh, come again? Oh, okay. Well, um, so uh, so with the, I, I'm curious about you get a new superintendent. How much of this is the, something that the superintendent uh, controls? How much power does the superintendent have? How much does the board have? It, are there city? I'm, I I just don't know the balance of I mean, power. I do think I guess. the board and the superintendent have a lot of power over. I mean, obviously, just its own district. But yeah, I mean, they have 
a lot of power um, to do great things or wreak havoc. I mean, it just depends. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, this decision that the board is about to take is they haven't done this a national search in over a decade, and this is the biggest decision that they will make. And I think folks will hold them accountable to it. You um, do think because that was going to be my next question is we we had these questions for the mayoral candidates and it's come up in gubernatorial elections and things, but it's a question. You know, shouldn't folks be really passionate about their school board election that same way. So uh, I've lived through, I think, six or seven superintendents. Um, and when a superintendent crashes and burns, people come out to vote mm -hmm. and they get rid of the board. So the pressure is very much on the board members to come up with somebody uh, who they don't just personally like, but who they actually believe is going to deliver. I mean, does anybody remember Tondaway Peebles? who um, had staff driving her to McDonald's and doing her homework for her PhD and walking her you dog. You can do that? And, I'm in grad school. And after we bought her out to the tune of a quarter million dollars, she turned back in her leased Escalade and there were cigarette burns in the back seat. Just but how were the schools during all this time, right? Like, I'm going to be a policy person here. The schools here. were no better. But after oh. that series of headlines and the fact that the schools didn't get better and the fact that teachers were demoralized, and demoralized teachers mean demoralized kids, that board was gone. Boom, all of them. Yeah, I would say that I think people probably don't pay a lot of attention to school board races until there's kind of uh, things come to a head. When there's something wrong, when something is evident that they need needs to be fixed, I think then those races obviously become a lot more interesting to voters and to reporters and to everybody. It's a much more ball. professional way of saying what I tried to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, within the sort of uh, the state context, you know, I think that there's uh, a big, there's, I don't want to say there's a disparity, but so much of the conversation ends up here in sort of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Yeah. But you cover schools statewide, and Beth, uh, you did too. And so what does the conversation look different in other parts? I mean, what are, this, what are people outside uh, of the Twin Cities sort of passionate and caring about? Well, yeah, well, I would say that definitely I think that, you know, that there is sort of a uh, sometimes an, kind of an us-them mentality that looks like when you talk about the Twin Cities school districts versus greater Minnesota – um, I think they have, you know, very similar uh, issues when it comes to sort of the, the, the core problems that they face and, I, I mean, the things that they want to deal with. But I think that there is kind of a, a – there's, you know, different challenges also. But, I mean, I think there – you know, at, at the end of the day, I think that a lot of the same concerns are there. Um, I, I would say that for them um, – you know, the funding piece is always a big issue, especially when you look, you know, uh, outstate and um, access is also a huge thing. And then a big one that we've heard a lot about in the last couple of uh, years is just facilities. So um, if you're in a rural part of the state, it might be a lot harder for you to you know, pass uh, a tax to fix your school up or build a new one. Um, and you don't get uh, a lot of times don't get the same uh, amount of uh, resources from the state as, say, a Minneapolis or St. Paul or an Edina even. Um, uh, but I think that's starting to change. I mean, the le legislature just, just updated their uh, basically full alternative school facilities program that will include a lot, you know, money will kind of flow a little more freely to a lot more districts. So, I mean, I think that those are some of the kind of the bigger issues that you're seeing, you know, on a statewide level. Um, a lot of it is financing. So to that end, I, I was um, 
I, I had one year of very non-traditional teaching that I did, and I basically the most important thing I walked out of there thinking is uh, teachers should be able to write their own paychecks because this is really <laughs> hard, yeah. uh, and I'm not good at it. And so somebody who's better than me should probably be doing yeah. this. Uh, has anybody tried that? Just being like teachers, blank check, whatever you need, uh, we'll do uh, this. I mean, right, Minnesota, you know, faces a growing shortage of teachers. I mean, especially in, in, in um, you know, hard speaking of Greater Minnesota. Yeah. That's I mean, a that's, a, that's a big issue for them as well. I mean, that's probably one of their top ones also is the teacher shortage. And we're also, I mean, and that really falls in a couple of very, very, very specialized places. Uh, you know, special education is a big one. Science and math. I mean, those are, teachers are in very short supply and in very high demand right now. So Especially when you talk about diverse teachers. Yeah, too. that's a big, I mean, I mean another like huge issue is, is you yeah, know, I mean, yeah. Minnesota's teaching force does not look like its student population. And so what are, are we doing anything of a, as a state around some of that? Or? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, there's a lot um, of like. Well, um, the other thing is it's hard for the state to recruit um, teachers outside of the state. So say right. they want to go to Chicago and hire a teacher from there who's yeah. great. Um, the laws are written, laws and rules are written in such a way that it's really hard for them to recruit yeah. those teachers. Because they have to go through all these hurdles to prove that they're... Yeah, the, one of the biggest fights the legislature last session, I mean, it was kind of, you know, I wouldn't say the biggest fights, but one of the biggest education bill, bill discussions that was out there was about making it easier for out-of-state teachers and teachers that are trained in other ways to get a license. And uh, there was some incremental change that will move that forward and make it a little bit easier for, you know, people from other states nearby and also around, you know, the U.S. to... Uh, get a Minnesota teacher license. A Minnesota teacher license is considered kind of the gold standard of the Midwest. Oh, that's and, good. I mean, it is good, but it's also hard to recruit if you have, uh, uh, you know, very, very specific requirements that are hard to sometimes, for some people, harder to meet. So if we were going to, like, lower our standards, what would it be like to, like, North Dakota standards or, like, Iowa? Or I think like, their argument is... we go down to, like, Missouri? <laughs> Missouri. Uh, I think I, I, they're... Take I, that, Missouri. I, I, th uh, I think we're also talking about teachers who have successful track records yeah, in other states, right. and, and the argument is that they're not just like a graduate of, I don't want to condemn some school in a Duke neighboring Gustavus, state. Do Gustavus, I'm from okay. there. Okay, <laughs> well, except Gustavus, you could just waltz right into your license because it's an in-state school, right? Take that, everyone else. Uh, um, but, you you know, there are people who've applied to become licensed Minnesota teachers who have 14, 15, 16 years of experience, and they have data that shows what they've been able to achieve with their students. They have uh, rare certifications in, say, reading recovery and other things that we desperately want here. And no one can, it's not even just that we don't have the rules, it's that no one can articulate the rules. Yeah. I mean, they go to the State Board of Teaching and they say, what do I have to do to get my Minnesota license? And like two years later, they're still waiting for a clear answer. And so there is a school of thought that says, if you have a successful track record and you can prove that, you ought to be able to take that evidence to the state and get your license. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> I, I have uh, so many more things, uh, and we are going to open it up to everybody for questions in the second half. I wanted to do one last one, which hopefully uh, is happier, is preschool. Everyone likes preschool. They can't have done anything wrong yet. Nothing uh, hotter in the last legislative right. session than preschool. Really? That, yeah. Who hates Yeah, just preschool? cut to break now. <laughs> yeah, so Ted, what was the fight at the legislature around preschool last? So um, the governor came out, uh, he's the first one, it's a, it's a budget year, so he's the first one to go first, basically. This is what I want to spend the money on. So he came out and basically said, I want to spend uh, you know, $343 million over the next two years to provide universal preschool for every four-year-old whose family wants it. Um, uh, basically, uh, the uh, Republicans in the House said that is way too expensive and we need to have more choice. We don't want to just create a universal program that not necessarily everybody wants. 
not necessarily school district wants or even has space for. It'd be better off for us to do a scholarship program so basically we help low-income kids and their families afford it. Um, they basically stared each other down throughout the whole entire legislative session. Um, they passed an education bill the governor didn't agree with and he vetoed it, which meant I spent a couple days of my summer in the, state, uh, the office building there at the state capitol while they had a special legislative session, which I think they all kind of agreed, but it wasn't necessarily a real satisfying end. Um, they got more money for preschool, but they didn't get universal. They didn't get enough for scholarships. So right now we're kind of on the cusp of another so discussion what we, of that. So what did we get enough money for then? If we didn't, not a, is it enough for like we, Johnny to go to preschool? Like that kid? Like was that what? Um, so the argument is whether we do all low-income kids from zero to four, or we do all four-year-olds. That was that was the calculus, and and in the special session they. Um, to so use, they're pitting they like, split the baby. Remember that play? Oh God! Yeah. Oh, that's so terrible metaphor in this terminology. Um, but, uh, so, so they split the baby, and so it's like three and a half year olds who get to go, and then they're, they're they get dropped out. They, they 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 put um, quite a bit of money into the scholarship program. So low income three and four year olds, there'll be more money for them to to uh, uh, to, to go to preschool, and they gradually increase what's called school readiness aid, and that money goes directly to school districts, so they can provide preschool programs for the people that they think need it the most. So we mentioned this is something maybe not all school districts want. How, much, how does Minneapolis feel about uh, preschool and like, is it something that uh, they- Yeah, they've supported it. They, 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 they think it. they have facilities already, but then the funding needs to be there. I mean, they can't yeah. be supplementing it in some way because it's not fully funded. All right. Um, but Minneapolis is doing it anyhow, right? right. right. I mean, they, they're very yeah. committed to that just period with or without right. the governor. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, for the, to, to, to the governor's credit, he has said he wants to do it all. So he wants to do low-income scholarships for three- and four-year-olds and then universal four-year-old preschool. But then I'm told that he may be coming around to the idea of a mixed delivery system where they kind of mix it all together. So uh, stay tuned. All right, on that <laughs> note, uh, we're going to give them a big round of applause, and then we're going to turn it over. So please, everybody. Okay. All right. So if you have a question, please just raise your hand, and I will rush towards you with a microphone in a non-threatening manner. Um, uh, so just raise, just raise your hand. It's school. It's like a school thing. Yes, right here. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Um, as a potential parent one day. What? Potential. I know I have friends in the audience. No, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> 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 As a potential parent one day who lives in Minneapolis, what would you either envision for the school districts in the metro area one day or maybe like think potentially what they could be in, I don't know, five to ten years from now? Beth. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two kids. One of them is in Minneapolis public schools and the other one is in a charter school. And um, they're both getting amazing educations. Um, my older child is at Southwest High School. And I would stack it up against any school in the world. I mean, he's taking higher level physics. He's taking classes that weren't available to me in college. Um, the resources are just tremendous. And uh, my other child is in an experimental charter that is doing personalized blended learning. So he is designing his own um, path. 
and he's more engaged than he has been. He's in eighth grade. He's more engaged than he has been any any year of school. Um, and he ha he's a special needs kid, so this is, is finally a really good fit for him. So you know, my takeaway for someone who's at your stage is that part of what's made this possible uh, for me is that unlike when I went to school, parents now have options and choices and a voice. And possibly uh, even more revolutionary from my parents' age. You know, my parents, I think, thought that they sent you to school and then they just sort of tried to talk you through it. You know, whether what parts of it worked and what parts of it didn't. Um, but you're going to have kids, should you get over the explosion and have them, um, in, a, in a landscape where so much is possible that, uh, and, and the resources that are available to you and your kids and the um, possibilities in terms of where they can go with that education are just limitless. I, I mean, I'm really optimistic about it. Can I ask a, fo uh, a follow-up uh, for all three in that uh, we talked a little bit about wanting uh, the schools being potentially more integrated and the benefits that that can have without thinking about busing or forcing that to happen. Is there some sort of cultural shift that it needs to be the people because uh, right now the line you hear over and over again is, oh, I had kids. I need to move to the suburbs because that's where the good schools are. Um, and is, does that have to change at some point? Well, Chris I, has once, kids in a suburban school yeah. district, and my guess is that they're, it's integrated. Yeah, I, I would say that I think the suburbs are becoming more and more um, you know, like, the, like the, the urban cities. I mean, it's not to the, the same extent, but I, I think that, you know, the metro as a whole, you're seeing that – um, you know, diversity just isn't in Minneapolis and St. Paul. I mean, it's in a lot of suburban school districts. Um, and, and so I, I think that that is starting to change. And I, I think that that uh, whole idea of um, moving out of the cities uh, just when you have children in order to get to a good school district really isn't the case as much anymore. I mean, I, I've been in Minnesota for four years. Uh, you know, we wound up where we wound up for lots of reasons. But I'll tell you, I've been impressed with every school that I've been in, in, in this, you know, uh, metro area. I mean, and all, they all have different challenges. Don't get me wrong. My kids' schools have different challenges than schools in Minneapolis or St. Paul have. Um, but I think by and large, the best point, I, I mean, we, I think we really are starting to kind of get past that tipping point uh, of kind of self-segregating ourselves when it comes to, to schools to, to some extent. All right. Uh, other questions? Uh, other hands that there were? Yeah. Um, I spend quite a bit of time in the schools as a visitor, at performing in front of kids, and the whole testing regime that we have come out of, which I hope we're coming out of, ha how do you see assessment figuring into our teacher retention, our children's souls, and the future of our kids? The entire future of testing, and you have like 12 seconds. 12, uh, 12 seconds? No, no, but that's a very good question. So, yeah. So I think there's a there's pretty much agreement across the board that, that um, we want kids to take the right test, and we don't want to have them take too many tests. And I think that how you get there is the point of contention right now. Uh, we're really on the cusp of uh, basically a reauthorization of the federal law that requires all the tests we take right now. And a lot of that power is going to come back here. And your lawmakers are going to be able to decide what those tests look like and what they're used for. So I, I would say that, um, you know, in the next couple of years, your voices can be heard in that system. 
and there's going to be a lot more flexibility for what it looks like. Um, but I think that we do want to remember that uh, I think most people agree we want to know how well our schools are doing. So, I mean, there's some – why I know there's a lot of people that feel there's a little over-testing in schools. I think there's also a lot of agreement around the fact that we still do need testing in schools to have an idea of how well they're performing. Okay, I was uh, warned uh, – I was waved down that there was a question somewhere here in the front. Did you – do you have a question? Or are you interested in this iPad game now? Okay, that's <laughs> – this show is very long. I know. Um, oh, no? Okay. Do you have this question that you can ask on her behalf? Uh, this is a three-year-old named <laughs> Elena, and she's not three and a half yet, but she is in preschool. And she told me that she's not sure what she's going to do after preschool. It's not really a question, but that's why she <laughs> raised her hand. Okay, can I? Uh, I'm going to try and turn this into a question. Uh, the, there's a lot of emphasis on pre-K and preschool. That said, there's also been some studies that show that the benefits of that start to peter out after a period of time. Third grade, is it? So I think it depends on what kind of early ed. And what I would say to Elena is that she is actually going to graduate from preschool with a ton of useful skills that she's not going to have to learn in kindergarten. She's going to know how to use her words and not her hands with her neighbors. She's going to know how to get lunch and snack. She's going to know how to take turns and participate, and she's probably going to have tons and tons of skills that she doesn't understand now but that are going to translate to reading and math. She probably is going to have graduate with some rhyming skills, for instance. That's a preliteracy skill. And I in terms of the policy that. question <laughs> that the tall guy asked, um, I think that what the research shows is that the quality of the pre-K and how early it starts has to do with the rebound that Ali was referring to. Um, if you get short-term or not terribly good quality early childhood education, there is a fade-out by third grade. If you invest in... Um, the most fragile kids, kids who come from families that have serious challenges with, say, chemical dependency or unmet mental health needs or homelessness, and you invest early and you invest to the tune of, I think it's $22,000 a year, um, those kids hit kindergarten with the same cognitive advantages as their wealthy peers, and there is no fade out mm. from that. But you need to be really intentional about rhyming, and involving parents and all those other things that we know Elena's getting. Awesome. Okay, uh, other hands. Yes, I'll come here in the front and then I'll run back there. So right here. So we talked some about the teacher shortage, especially compounded in certain regions and subjects. And um, it's also true that teacher turnover is higher than it's ever been. Uh, what can we do to make teaching a better job? Well, this, Don't all jump this, at once. This gentleman, uh, this gentleman is associated with an organization <laughs> that talks about teacher-powered schools, right? Um, so what I would say is that what his research and work shows is that empowering teachers is one way to keep them, helping them to be successful in defining them, their careers and defining a career path, providing a career path besides getting an administrator's license and being an administrator, giving them power in decision-making in the schools, and giving them tools to be effective with their students. Um, did I hit them all? Do you want to? <laughs> okay. Uh, 
Allie, do you have any? Because uh, I, I mean, that's not, we we were able to get his in. Uh, anybody else, though? Uh, independent answers are always valued. I've heard um, from a lot of teachers that, and we were recently at a conference where some folks talked about this. But the thing that really keeps them, makes or breaks them, is a good principal. So a good leader. So um, you know the districts need to invest in some really good leaders and make sure that the people that are training these teachers um, believe in them and help them grow and um, support them all the way because they'll leave if they don't feel that support. Okay, cool. Right here. Um, this question is actually kind of similar to that one. Um, I'm I was in schools this last spring with some civil rights era dramatizations and actually. I was a little bit uh, surprised, displeased at the interactions between the teachers and students and kind of the lack of compassion there. Um, and with talking about the high standards for the Minnesotan teachers coming in, I just wonder what kind of reevaluation there is within the schools for those teachers um, in, in kind of a similar way, how to keep them, how to keep that compassionate element there, even if they have the... The, the standard, right, the high standard to come in with. Well, I think Minnesota is, uh, you know, has a new evaluation system that is just now uh, sort of getting on its feet. And uh, a piece of that, quite honestly, is evaluations from family and students. So um, in some districts, you know, those evaluations carry more weight than others. But, I mean, that is a piece that can sort of help uh, teachers and families kind of weigh in on the, uh, excuse me, students and families weigh in on who's teaching that, them. And I think that um, to some extent, you know, that is meant to sort of address that in a way. It's almost like, you know, when you rated your college professors uh, at the end of the course, you know, five through one, how well the class went. Um, I think the, te the problem right now is that there's not a lot of uniformity to the way these are done. I don't know how that works in Minneapolis, but I know that there's been some controversy around right. the state about how well those uh, evaluations actually right. work. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was in a classroom with a teacher, unrelated, nothing to do with evaluations, and it was during the time that they were doing that survey, and it was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, they, and this, these were kindergartners, so, I mean, I think, I think they have to think right. of that there's some controversy over how that, you know, those are addressed, but the system's in place. Okay, so I've got two questions here in the front that I'm hoping we can get through both of these, so right here. Uh, what, are, what are some of the um, interesting, innovative trends in education that maybe not here, but in other states or other countries that you think might be coming here soon? I think my one of the things that I'm kind of watching most closely is, is just how technology is used in classrooms right now. Um, like I said, I have two kids. Uh, I have a 14-year-old, and she's uh, part of a kind of a pilot program that's every kid's got an iPad in our school district, um, not in her class. It's not the whole school district, but in her class. And so I, I'm paying pretty close attention just on how, how that um, affects her learning and, and whether or not it's a tool or a distraction. Um, so I think that the technology piece, to me, is going to really drive the, you know, the next 50 years of education. I think you're going to see uh, things like gaming and um, you know, teaching in very different ways through technology than you see now as somebody standing up in front of a room this, like this and, and talking for 30 minutes and then giving you a, a test. Uh, you know, it's going to be different than that, I think. Um, I, I think it also allows for more personalization when it comes to learning. Uh, so 
Um, I, I think there's a really a broad spectrum of things that can happen there. Um, and I think we're starting to see small pieces of that in Minnesota. Um, I know a lot of technology is being pushed into our classrooms right now. I'm less certain how it's being used right away, but I think that um, it's really kind of a beginning of, a, of an era of you know, big change. Yeah, and you know, I just want to second everything he said, but I also wanted to add that this could also solve our ambivalence over assessments and testing because the data collecting function and the assessment function can be embedded in the games. It can be part of the games. It can be part of the kids' um, dashboard or self-learning system. It can be an integral part of the learning rather than this, like, bad day at the end of the quarter. Right, so and so basically, you know, it's like you want kids to be excited to play Candy Crush or to do their math problems rather, you know, I mean, so that's essentially what, what Beth is talking about is that people are working on ways to assess learning that are fun and not I have to take this test. Um, not that all assessments are unfun. I mean, some are fun, right? Really? Uh, did you have one that you wanted to jump in with? Um, I was going to say that I've heard a lot from educators about rethinking high school. Um, you know, so that you're not, like when I went to school, just taking core classes and maybe some electives and then you graduate and you're done. Um, rethinking everything from the way the school itself is laid out so it's more of a community type um, building. But also things like, you know, partnering with businesses that you sort of do internships during school and um, really get that experiential learning that it's not just textbook. Um, so we're going to be seeing, I think, a lot of that soon, rethinking what high school should be and what it should look like. Fascinating. So this is fun. Uh, a school board member, Rebecca Gagnon, <laughs> is here, and she usually gets asked questions by you all. Yes. So, like, you <laughs> very excited. First, I want to say that the student survey is difficult because there's questions for preschoolers, like, or for elementary students, like, does your teacher push you? So, <laughs> pretty much, they don't get that. So, if the kids answer yes, I worry, honestly. <laughs> and then they would get pushed. And then yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but I guess the question I have, I'm on a, a national board appointed by Secretary Duncan, and we uh, just were with the Gallup poll, person ahead of education for the Gallup poll, and one of the things they found is that hope has a greater correlation to college uh, engagement than the ACT, SAT, and GPA. So I just want to ask you about, we, we need to empower our kids. We need to uh, lift them up and stop talking about them as the gap, as the bottom, as they need hope. And if that is in fact true, which the Gallup poll, hello, it's gotta be true. Um, what do you think? So who's gonna argue against hope really quick here? Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, I was a, I'll be honest, I was a poor student um, and I wasn't gonna go to college until I worked about a year in a pizza place cleaning greasy pans and decided that I didn't want to do this again very long. Uh, so I, I got off my butt and I went back to school. And I, you know, I went to community college and I went to a four-year college and, um, you know, I got my degree. It took me six years. I, not a, I was not a good student until towards the end. Um, and I really do think that, um, you know, telling kids that they can do this, you know, you know early on and, and giving them options and letting them see down the road a piece and why it's important it, it, it really it would be more it would have empowered me more I think as a as a high school kid who didn't really give a crap to be honest um, at the time so I think that I, I think you're right I mean I think that there's something to be said for hope um, but I, you know <laughs> there's something wrong. to be said for hope uh. well outside of I mean there's a lot of other things that could also get you know kids to uh, perform better in school too so yeah. 
Uh, other thoughts uh, on hope? It's <laughs> a tough one. Um, you know, I, I think I think part of this is is on us and reporters to be balanced with our reporting, um, to to not just say you know talk about the gaps and all this, but but those are important um, and we should be telling those good stories. But as I've told you and have often said, getting access to those stories sometimes is a bit difficult. Yeah, <laughs> so. Um, um, it's not easy for me to walk into the school and be like, look at this great teacher, because there's all these gatekeepers. Um, so I'd love to tell those stories. Um, and I try very hard to, um, and so that kids see themselves in, in those stories and get the hope. But we also can't, I mean, and I know, I know you're not saying this, but we, we have to keep those in the system accountable and um, tell those stories too. So sometimes we talk about the belief gap which is the gap in between what the system believes that a child is probably going to be able to do or learn or achieve and uh, what we expect from their circumstance. And the best schools that I have visited here and around the country um, believe that, and I mean, it sounds like a cliche, and when I first started writing about education, I used to roll my eyes, but the adults in those buildings and the adults in the homes of those kids do believe that those kids can excel. Ladies and gentlemen, can we uh, do a big round of applause for our three amazing guests? Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.